Well, we're going to be continuing today, folks, in the study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we're at the very end of the first chapter today, looking at verses, uh, the fifth chapter, actually, uh, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at verses 43 through 48. And I'd like to invite you, if you haven't already done so, please uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. As you're doing that, I'd like to give you a little bit of a, a mental exercise. And that exercise goes like this. I'd like you to think with me about the list you would complete if you were to list all of your friends. How long would that take you? And what if I were to clarify that assignment and encourage you social media folks to write down all of your Facebook friends as well. How long might that take you to complete? And if I were to add some more clarification and ask you to write down the names of everyone with whom you are friendly, past and present, now how long would that take you to think about and write down all those names? I think for most of us, that would be a fairly time-consuming task. Remember, in light of all the additional clarifications I gave you, you're making a list that would include basically everyone of family members all the way down to mere acquaintances. So for, for some of us, I think that list could stretch into the hundreds, if not the thousands. But let me pull 180 on you. What if I were to ask you to make a list of all your enemies, past and present? It's a good old-fashioned enemy list. How long would it take you to complete that task? Now, I suspect for most of us, it would only take us a matter of minutes to create that list, maybe even less than a minute. But why the difference between these terms, between enemy list and friends list? I believe it's because generally, uh, we're nice people, right? <laughs> we, we just get along pretty well with people. We don't have many genuine enemies. Well, maybe that's the case, I don't know. But perhaps the issue really, if we're going to see today, is how we think or how we describe, how we define the word enemy. Honestly, who is or what is an enemy? I want you to hold on to that question, if you will, for just a moment as we jump into God's word here today. Let's go ahead and read our text today, verses 43 through 48. Listen carefully to what Jesus said to the crowd. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just as well as the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ is the word of the Lord. How does God want us to use or apply these instructions in our hearts this morning? Let's go ahead and dig into our text. And I believe that in order to properly understand and apply what Jesus is saying here, there are three key aspects in his sermon. The first aspect of that sermon is connected to the opening exercise 
that we completed earlier in our sermon. And to be specific, the first thing for us to consider if we're to apply this properly is the who of loving our enemy. Who is this enemy that we're to love? When Jesus says, love your enemies, who exactly does he have in mind? May I suggest that the best way to define that is to look at what these verses, what Jesus says himself about our enemies. And right away, Jesus adds another phrase to that command. Did you see it? Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who do what? Persecute you. And so one of the things we might say about our enemies is they are likely those who persecute us. They may in some way harass us or trouble us or give us grief. Some of you may recall that back in verses 10 through 12, Jesus spoke about this persecution in the sermon. Blessed, he said, are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus indicates here that because we are walking with Jesus, there may be people who will treat us badly. Because we don't follow the pathway of the world but Jesus, we will sometimes encounter persecution. And as we see in this chapter, there are many ways that that persecution may manifest itself. And so that helps fill in, I think, this definition we're trying to develop here a bit more. What else do we see in our text in terms of identifying our enemies. We'll look at verse 46. In contrast to his main command, Jesus talks about here about only loving those who love you or me. And therefore, it seems that obvious to me that we can say our enemies are also people who don't love us, or more specifically, people who demonstrate they have no concern for us. Now, that being noted, let's not forget what we looked at last week in verses 38 through 42. Remember what Jesus said? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, Uh, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other cheek as well. And if anyone should sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go two miles, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In other words, as we define our enemies, I believe we should also think about all those people who only want to take from us in one way or another. After all, if you're honest, as I've tried to be with myself this week, isn't it true that the people who are like that in our lives, because of that, we might be tempted to to follow the very teaching that Jesus is attempting to correct here. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, unlike all the other statements we've seen, the first five statements, this is not a direct command from the Old Testament, but rather a popular teaching that was being promoted by the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus. Now, why had these leaders developed a teaching of this kind of hatred? I have two thoughts as I wrestle through this this week. First, many, I think, believe, uh, believe this because they've twisted the understanding of Leviticus 19.18, uh, 
where God in his law commands us saying, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Since Leviticus 19.18 here declares they are to love their neighbor, follow the logic here, and their neighbors are their fellow Jews, then it must be okay not to love people outside the Jewish faith or race. And thus, if you don't love other people who are not Jewish like they are, it must be okay to hate them. That's kind of the logic. Believe it or not, as I did research this week, that's exactly what the, the rabbis were teaching the people at this time. In fact, who is one's neighbor, as you probably are aware, was a running theological debate at this time among the Jews. With that thought in mind, how many are you familiar, are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan? I think almost everybody. If you are, you likely understand that Jesus shared that parable after having just explained to a lawyer of the law that loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself were the two greatest commands. And that's about the time that lawyer raised his hand and said, <clears throat> uh, that expert in the law, hey, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered that, uh, that lawyer by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, a parable about how a pious or a righteous Levite passed right by a Jewish man who had been robbed, beaten, and stripped, and left on the road for dead between Jerusalem and Jericho, having shown him no mercy or no compassion. In contrast, the, the deeply despised Samaritans saw this man, took pity on him, were told in this story that he bandaged his wounds, he put the suffering man on his donkey, took him to an inn, and there he made sure he was cared for, probably literally saving his life. And when Jesus had finished that parable, remember what he asked the expert of the law. He said, now which of these three men saw their neighbor, you know, was, was their true neighbor? And the lawyer replied, the one who showed mercy, right? Jesus answered, correct, now, now go and do the same. And in so doing, I believe Jesus corrects the lawyer's question, the improper question from who is my neighbor to how do I be a genuine neighbor? He also makes very clear that unlike the narrow perspective of these Jewish teachers at this time, hear me, a neighbor is someone who is in need, who we see in need, and whose need we are able to meet. Now, without a doubt, I can only imagine that Jesus' teaching made that lawyer a little uncomfortable. And if we're honest with ourselves, Jesus' response makes us a little uncomfortable. But Jesus never promises that his plan in our life will make us comfortable. In fact, through this parable, Jesus teaches us that we, brothers and sisters in Christ, ought to be willing to go extreme lengths in showing love to others, to serve others, even if they are not like us, even when we receive nothing but contempt and persecution as a result. That's one of the first reasons they had this hatred. Others believe that the conclusion was reached to hate their enemies based on verses like Psalm 139, verse 21. Here David says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I loathe those who rise up against you? I would submit to you that David was not encouraging or exemplifying the kind of hatred Jesus is speaking against in the Sermon on the Mount. David, you see, is emphasizing whose side he's on. He's emphasizing his commitment to justice and opposition to those who hate God and love corruption. 
David's judicial statements as a leader and as a king were not put in scripture here to encourage hatred. Hear me, on a personal trial, they were put there to encourage the hatred of sin. Looking back at our biblical text, especially verse 47, let's see what we can learn more about this identifying who our enemy is. Verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, says Jesus here, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Now what's he doing here? Could Jesus be addressing here uh, loving your neighbor in verse 43 and greeting your only brother in verse 47, is he addressing the inappropriate idea that our enemies are those who are different from us that the Jews held so proudly to? Remember that for the Jews, non-Jews, Gentiles, and other nations in general were thought of in those terms. The Jews of Jesus' day interpreted neighbor meaning only those people of their own community, only those people of their own religion and their own nation. Thus, they believed that they should love everyone who is just like them, but anyone who is not just like them, the Jews did not love. In fact, as we see with the Samaritans, they often despise, despise people like, not like them. I thought about that for a little bit, brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't it possible, likewise, as followers of Jesus, that we might also be tempted to withhold love from anyone who is not like us? Of course, the irony of all that is, as Jesus indicates here, when God's people try to separate ourselves from the world in this way, we actually end up modeling or following the world's own path, which must break God's heart. That's why Jesus asks, do not even the Gentiles do the same? So stop for a moment and think about the larger original question, who is my enemy? I look at this text and I see a much bigger and expanded definition of an enemy than most of us have, me included. For Jesus indicates here that an enemy could be anyone, anyone whom you might withhold love from because he or she disdains you or dismisses you or is demanding of you or is simply different than you. Let me repeat that because I think it's that important. Jesus indicates here that an enemy could be anyone with whom you might withhold love because he or she disdains you or dismisses you or is demanding of you or is simply different from you. If you think about the word enemy in those terms with me for just a minute, be honest. Wouldn't your enemies list expand just a little bit? And wouldn't some of the people currently on your friends list right now at this time, at times, be considered part of your enemy list? After all, aren't there situations and sometimes seasons in which people we know and love and trust that can be against us? Aren't there times when those type of people, those friends on that list, uh, can seem to be all they want to do is get something from us? They don't give anything. And be honest, when that happens... Aren't you tempted in those times to withhold love from them? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, love your enemies. And that, friends, brings us to the second aspect of this passage. The next thing we want to consider is the why of loving our enemies. 
We don't have to look far for the reason behind Jesus teaching this. Look at verse 45. Let me start with verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why should we love our enemies? Well, simply state it because God does. More specifically, because God loves his enemies. Think about the examples that Jesus gives us here. The love of God for his enemies is demonstrated in the simple fact that he does not give the evil and the unjust exactly what they deserve. Praise God for that. He allows them to see another day. He sends rain on their crops. And according to Jesus, the sunlight and the showers are enjoyed as a gift from God for both those who love him and those who hate him. Why does he bless the evil and the unjust this way? I thought about that for a little bit, and it occurred to me that later on the Apostle Paul will explain this common grace, this broader grace, in these terms. Look at Acts chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. Here he's speaking to a pagan crowd. In verse 15 he says, Men, why are you doing these things? Why also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news? We also are men of, good, of the same nature. He says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their way. Don't miss 17. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Later on in Acts chapter 17, Paul will explain to another group of pagan Greeks this broad and common grace and its purpose when he writes that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And so we are called to follow God's example of love. And to be clear, I think this command to love our enemies should be thought of as, in, in some way being not being by itself. It's, it's a clarification, as I see, of what it means to love our neighbors. You see, in our hearts, our sin works on a narrow scope of love, but God wants us to expand, stretch us way beyond what we normally are willing to do. Every person in your life, no matter who they are and how they treat you. I like the way pastor and writer Martin Lloyd-Jones expressed it when he said, our treatment of others must never depend upon what they are or upon what they do to us. It must entirely uh, be entirely controlled and governed by our view of them and their condition. We must love our enemies for one reason only, not that we can ever redeem or make anything of them, but that in this way we can display to them the love of God. And thus we love others with the fullness that God himself demonstrates through us. And this is why Jesus goes on to tell his followers in the verse 48 here, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, what in the world does that mean? Boy, I wrestled on that for a little bit. What does this fullness of love, even for enemies, look like? And that brings us to the third aspect of this text, the how of loving our enemies. And the how of loving the how of Jesus is focused on how we treat others who treat us badly. Now, to be clear here, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that Christ said, love your enemies, not like them. Uh, we're not called upon to like everyone. We can't do that. 
but we are commanded to love them. Why? Because we see here we're called to do, what the things we're called to do, we're to pray for those who persecute us. Verses 47 and following says, not only are we, we're not only to just greet our brothers, but we're to have genuine warm greetings, even for those who are anything but warm and welcoming to us. Of course, when we talk about how to love our enemies, we cannot forget what we learned in last week's passage. We recall that when we're being taken advantage of, we ought to take advantage of that opportunity to give them more. That's mind-boggling. We're to love our enemies. We're to respect them, even have hospitality. We're to serve them with a generous Christ-like spirit. All in the attempt to display the fullness of God, love that only God can give us. Jesus says simply here, watch, observe, and look at how our Father in heaven is loving us and resemble that love. Now, if you're like me, that blows your mind. How is that possible? This verse, be perfect, in verse 48, I think can find, it can send us down two different paths. If we truly care about what Jesus is saying, our response to this command is that we can enter a path of self-effort or we can enter the path to the cross. What's the difference between these two paths? The first path is all about me changing me. The second path is about God changing me. Because only God can change our hearts, brothers and sisters in Christ, the first path will fail miserably. Thus, the only way for us to love and to serve God, as he's saying here, was first admitting that we can't be perfect in our own efforts. It's coming to the conclusion that we must trust Jesus, who is the perfect sacrifice for sinners like you and me. Only then can he give us that heart full of power and desire to love as Jesus speaks here within these instructions. On that topic, look carefully at the words of Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Paul uses the same Greek word here for enemy to help us see the condition we were before coming to know Jesus. And you, he says, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Later on in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, weaving these thoughts together, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And you see what Paul is telling us here. The common broad grace of God is meant to point us to the special grace of God. The sunlight each morning is meant to direct us to the ultimate light of his son, Jesus Christ, that new day that only he can give. Now, yes, God loves his enemies by giving them rain and, and all the other provisions he talks about. But folks, the greatest provision of an expression of his love for his enemies, among whom we once were, was at the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. Only there can you and I find showers of transforming grace and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Now let me remind all of you that there is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing found in us, you and me both, who would cause God to love us in this way. None of us are meriting in that love or, or uh, are 
worthy of it. First John 4, 9 and 10 tells us, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now we have the amazing opportunity to be a showcase of that love and that grace for others, even when they are anything but loving to us. Amazing. I got to this point in my sermon. Uh, just yesterday, I was reflecting on this sermon, and I got to tell you, I'm not there yet. I have to be honest with you and admit that I do not consistently respond to those who hurt me, as Jesus instructs us here to do. But here's the thing that I take away from Jesus' instructions here that really are an encouragement to me. When someone treats us like an enemy, isn't it a reminder of how we once treated God as an enemy? Disdainful, demissive, and demanding. And when we choose to remember the love of God demonstrated to us by giving Jesus a love none of us surely deserved, I believe it compels us to demonstrate that same love to others, even those making it clear that they don't deserve it. So think again with me, if you will, in the closing of this sermon about the people on your list who have or who seem to be acting like your enemy. Stainful, missive, demanding, maybe labeling you as some kind of different. Maybe even God now is bringing somebody specifically to your mind or to your hearts, a group of people. And maybe, I, I can hear you in your, in your heart just the way I do, the last thing you want to do is show love to them. And yet, if we are a follower of Jesus, that's the very thing he's calling us and empowering us to do. Why? So that you and I can know the fullness of God's love in and to us. And listen, so that unkind, hurtful person can know the fullness of God's love through us. What a privilege. And that, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is what I believe to be the main emphasis of Jesus' instruction in this final section of chapter 5. Jesus says here, believers, reenact the love and the grace received from God in Christ by showing that same love and grace to others. And I love this because he, in, in the text he says, when you do that, our family resemblance will be seen. Our Heavenly Father's likeness will be evident. I hope that's the prayer of every one of us. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so very much for these instructions from our Savior. Lord, thanks for being so patient with us. Thank you for loving us in spite of who we are and what we've done and for the grace and mercy that you showed in sending Jesus to die in our place and for our sins. And I pray if there's even one person either watching or here in person who has not come to the realization of their need for a Savior, that this might be the day, Lord, that they will see that need and place their trust in Jesus. Father, I pray for any of us that know Jesus as our Savior and we're struggling with bitterness or anger toward others. Lord, help us, I pray, to be compelled 
by the grace and mercy you showed us to be willing to humble ourselves and show grace and mercy to others. We can't do that on our own, Lord, but we can do that through the power and the strength of your Holy Spirit, trusting, Lord, that you are indeed good as we pray this now. In Jesus' name, amen.